Just, yeah, well, let me let you be seated for just a little bit longer. Let me kind of talk my way into where we are. Uh, we'll be starting Romans chapter 15 this morning. And because of our reset, it'll, this will be the last lesson from Romans for several weeks. It's five consecutive Sundays before we pick this back up again. And so we'll, we'll be some time out of uh, this study. But Romans 15, the very beginning of it, probably the first two lessons from it, deal with the same subject as Romans chapter 14 dealt with, the, the subject of Christian liberty. So there's not really a good breaking point. Uh, I consider stopping between the chapters. But really, since it deals with the exact same material, I'm just going to go ahead and teach again this morning. And then we'll have another lesson that deals with this here in six weeks or so. And then the, the book kind of makes a transition there into the closing of the book. And so um, in today's lesson, in the first few verses of Romans chapter 15, Paul starts to wrap up the discussion of Christian liberty. And he does it by encouraging us to be like Christ, to follow the example that Jesus has set for us. If, if we would all love as we've been loved, if we would all give mercy the way that we have received mercy, then, then there will be much greater harmony and unity in the church. Amen? We'd treat each other a little better. Amen? The main hindrance to harmony, unity, wholeness, and oneness in the church is the spirit of selfishness. And the unpleasant truth about us humans is that at the end of the day, unless the love of Jesus Christ dramatically changes our hearts, we prefer ourselves above others. I mean, just go ahead and put the finger in your chest and tell that that's me. And like it or not, we like to see the best about ourselves. We like to think of ourselves in the best possible light. But the truth is that as humans... Without the grace of God working in our lives, that's the changing factor. The love of God is what changes us. But without that love working in our lives, we're prone to look out for number one at the expense of everybody else. We elevate ourselves above all else. We consider ourselves before we consider anyone else. But Jesus Christ didn't live that way. He laid down his life. For you and for me, when we didn't deserve it, when we weren't worthy of it, when we hadn't done anything to merit it, when he didn't owe us anything, he died for us. He preferred us before him. The cross is the antithesis of selfishness. It's the cross where we see true love exemplified. It's at the cross where we see true grace made real. It's at the cross where we understand, amen, there is a perfect sinless man who preferred me above himself. That's the example. And we speak of the humanity of Jesus Christ in that regard. We're speaking of the example that we have been given. And so now Paul turns this discussion in that direction and calls us to imitate Jesus Christ, to treat others the way he has treated us. Now, if you'll stand with me, Romans chapter 15, I'm going to read the first six verses, Romans 15, 1 through 6. If you have it, would you say amen? amen. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's where we'll stop this morning. Uh, and I, if you'll pray with me, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I'm asking in the next few moments that you'd allow the word of God that is being read in our hearing. Lord, let it impact our hearts and lives. Let it touch us, God, and let it change us. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. I'll go back to verse 1, read it again, and then kind of get into the ex- exposition of it. Verse 1 said, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So you'll notice right away we're using the same language that the preceding chapter used. The discussion for the time being is still centered on the strong in faith and the weak in faith. And in this discussion, the strong in faith are those who eat meat. Praise God. So thankful. Amen. And the weak in faith are those that would not eat meat. The strong in faith would take the meat. They would bless it in Jesus' name. And as far as they were concerned, that was enough. That was sufficient to, to make sure the meat was clean and take it, dedicated it to God. And then they ate it. And they didn't worry another thing about it. But those who are weak in their faith, their conscience would not let them eat the meat because of the fear that it may have possibly been offered to idols and that by partaking of the meat, they may be participating in idolatry. Now, this is nothing new. In the last four or five weeks, we've discussed this scenario over and over and over again. But what that is the example that is given to define the strong in faith And the weak in faith, the strong in faith are meat eaters. The weak in faith are vegetarians. Do we get this? Praise God. The strong in faith look kind of like this. Amen. Thankful to be strong in my faith. (laughs) Over the last several weeks then, we've seen Paul make the point that it is the strong that are called to compromise with the weak. We're, we're not to force the weak to violate their conscience and, and, and act like the strong because if we force them to violate their conscience, according to Paul, that's sin. We've already covered that back in verse, chapter 14. So Paul goes so far as to tell us that the strong should not eat meat around the weak. Why? Because they should respect their conscience. This is how much Paul respects their conscience. Even if if their conscience is requiring of them something that is not entirely necessary. It's okay to eat meat. Just bless it and eat it. But their conscience required of them something that is not entirely necessary. Paul said we should regard their conscience high enough that we would not try to twist their or force them to do something or be a part of something or even do around them the thing that it is that their conscience dictates to them that they do not do. Amen. 
Now, we defined this whole discussion very early on, this, this eating meat, not eating meat. These are non-moral issues, issues that don't pertain to salvation. You have some Christian liberty in those areas uh, that don't pertain to salvation. Amen. They're non-moral. And so we're talking about those kind of areas, those kind of choices that you make. And so Paul says in that kind of a place, we're not called to try to set the weak straight. Instead, we're called to help establish them in their faith. That's where chapter 15 picks up. It provides us a summary of all that's going before. Paul says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. So the first thing that you might notice is that Paul is considering himself to be among the strong. Paul was a meat eater. Praise God. Amen. We that are strong, he says. And so the, the, the thing that you have to understand is Paul puts the heavier burden on the strong. But you have to remember he counts himself among the strong. He's not asking you to do anything that he's not doing himself. And this is what he says. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The word that's translated as ought to is a powerful word that implies that a debt is owed. We owe a debt. It is our obligation when we owe a debt to pay it. Amen? When you incur a debt, you're, you're, you're on the basis of your word. You're saying you're going to pay that debt back. Amen? So if we owe a debt, it is an obligation that we have to take care of it. Likewise, the, the point here is that the strong are called to help the weak on the basis of a moral obligation. It's something we ought to do. It's something we owe them. Amen? We owe them not to lead them into sin. We owe them not to cause them to violate their conscience. The word translated as infirmities would probably be better translated as weaknesses in order to make the point clearer. We ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. In other words, if their conscience condemns the eating of meat, then we shouldn't eat meat around them. That's how we bear their weakness. Does that make sense? Amen. The word bear has the connotation of carrying the burden. It's our job to carry the burden, not theirs. We're the strong, they're the weak. Amen. The strong should help the weak carry the burden. We, we shouldn't stand over them in judgment and condescension and condemn them and criticize them because of their weakness. Instead, we should humble ourselves and help them bear the burden. Amen. We should help them uh, do what their conscience has required of them that they do. Uh, now, I understand this is not real revelatory stuff here. You're not getting up and shouting and running the aisles, and you're not going to. But this is practical Christian living. This is how we all get along. This is how we all come together and become a church. Because we all come from different walks of life. We all have different backgrounds. I don't know anything about sod farming. But my friend back here does. Amen. I don't know very, I know very little about electricity. Just enough to get myself hurt. But Brother Houston, he knows about electricity. 
Amen. I, I, I have very little understanding of what it takes to be a nurse and, and very little understanding of what it takes to run a, 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 a factory or, or whatever, the different things, the different backgrounds. We're all from varied backgrounds, from different places, with different thoughts. And we even have different political backgrounds and different ideological backgrounds. And, and some of us come from different cultures. Amen. But all of that comes together in the church and is welded together into one body. Amen. Amen. How do we get past those divisions and differences? This is how. This is the way we started way back in chapter 14. That's how we introduced chapter 14. Amen. There's a lot of difference in the church, but it is, our differences don't make us weaker. They make us stronger. Amen. And the way that we do that is we accommodate for each other the same way that Jesus Christ accommodated for us. The strong bear the burden of the weak. Amen. So the strong shows his strength not by exercising his liberty, but by bearing the burden of the weaker brother. Why? Remember, the very heart of this discussion has been the preservation of the conscience. It is a dangerous thing to teach someone to violate their conscience. It is a dangerous thing to cause someone to violate their conscience. Because Paul defined it earlier in chapter 14 that the thing that they'd done, eating the meat, is not a sin. But violating their conscience is a sin. And if their conscience condemns the eating of meat and they eat the meat, Paul said they stinned. Amen? Because we cause them to violate their conscience. So in the case of meat, the, the strong can refrain from eating meat and that doesn't violate their conscience. But the weak can't eat meat because if they do, they will sin. They will have violated their conscience. The only sensible course of action then is none of us eat meat. Well, that just took the air right out of me. Because if, if none of us eat meat, then neither one of us has to transgress our conscience. Neither one of us has to violate our conscience. That's why the strong are called to bear the burden of the weak. Amen? Because we can bear the burden of the weak without injuring us. We're strong. But if they try to carry the same load we carry, it will injure them because they're weak. Now, at the end of the verse, Paul strikes to the heart of the matter. We should not live to please ourselves. That's the real key to harmony and unity and peace in the church. When we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to keep the peace. When we're willing to lay down our own rights and our own privileges for the good of another. Then we are truly exemplifying what it means to be a Christian. Because Christianity is about lifting up the weakest that are among us. Not trotting them under. Amen. The natural order of things is that only the strong survive. In nature, the weak are discarded and the strong triumph. In nature, in science, they call it the survival of the fittest. It ensures that only the best and the strongest of a species will live long enough to, to reproduce. And the weak and the infirm, they die off. And their poor genetic structure doesn't survive. And so the species become stronger because of this law of the survival of the fittest. But that's not the way it works in the church. In the church, the strong have a moral obligation to the weak. 
to stop and help them, not to discard them, not to push them away, not to trod them underfoot, not to ease them out the door, but to try to draw them in and lift them up and make them stronger in their faith. Amen? The goal is not just that I'll make it to heaven. The goal is that we together will make it to heaven. The church is about community. It's about coming together in one body. It's about coming together as one group, one united people. Amen. And so it's not about the strong will survive and the weak, well, they'll just have to get by on their own. No, 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 no. That's not the principle of the church. That may be the way the law of nature works, but that's not the way the law of Christ works. Amen. The law of Christ demands that we help one another, that we come to each other's aid, that I help you bear your burden and you help me bear my burden and where I am weak you are strong and where you are weak I am strong and together we make it to heaven amen so genuine Christianity calls us to turn our back on selfishness not to live to please ourselves but to live in such a way that we encourage and even enable others to live for God Amen. Verse 2 says, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Let every one of us please his neighbor. The concept of pleasing our neighbor means that we should be willing to sacrifice our own desires for the good of others. So often we're focused on pleasing ourselves. So often we're focused on what we want. That, that, that's all that really seems to matter us. But, but Paul is calling us to forsake ourselves and seek to please our neighbor. That's our brother or sister in the Lord, our brother or sister in the church. So Paul has provided us with this command. Let us try to please them, not us. Let us try to help them. Not, not so selfish in what we do. And then he gives some direction regarding what that means. We're to please others for their good to edification. We are to do things. In the case of the example given, we're talking about not eating meat. So we're to not eat meat for our brother's good so that he is edified. The word edification has to do with building something up. And that's exactly the opposite of tearing something down. Do you see the parallel now between chapter 14 and last week's lesson? And we talked about the, the building up and the tearing down. Instead of tearing somebody down, we're to build them up. We're to help them grow in the Lord. So we please our neighbor. We, we, we put their want, their need, their thing, their, their burden before us. Amen. We help shoulder their load. And in so doing, we do that unto their good so that they are built up. Nowhere in there is there I and me. It's all they and them. Amen. I'm trying to help my brother. I'm trying to make sure my brother makes it to heaven. I'm trying to make sure my brother doesn't lose out. I'm trying to make sure my sister doesn't get discouraged and drop out along the way. I'm willing to humble myself so that my sister stays in the church. Amen. Verse 3 says, For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Now, it may seem like Paul is asking a lot of the strong. But now he appeals to Jesus Christ as our primary example. And we realize he's not asking any more from us 
than that we be like Christ. Jesus is our supreme example, and he did not seek to please himself. He put the needs and interests of the whole human race before his own good. He laid down his life so that we might live. He humbled himself even unto death so that the weaker, that would be you and me in this case, so that the weaker could have the chance to be saved. When we as Christians relate to each other in the same spirit of selfless service and sacrifice that Jesus exhibited on the cross, then there will be true harmony and peace and unity in the church. Amen? When we relate to each other in the same way that Jesus relates to the church, when, when the burden is, when we recognize the fact that the burden is placed squarely on our shoulders to make sure there's peace in the church. We, we can't look at someone else and say, well, if only they would do such and such, or if only she would, would come and apologize, or if only he would make this right. No, the burden lies with us. If only we would be a little more like Christ, then there'd be less division in the church. The finger points here. It's my job. If only I was a little bit more like Jesus, there would be unity and harmony in the church. Now Paul ends that verse by quoting from Psalm 69 and 9. And in Psalm 69 and 9, David is lamenting that God's enemies are also his enemies and that they're taking out their hatred of God on him. And Paul, what he does, he takes the words of David and he puts them into the mouth of Jesus on the cross. And he has Jesus on the cross saying that the anger and reproach that sinners have directed against God is being borne by him. Amen. The reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. These are the words of Christ and Paul's telling of the story. So Paul's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus bore our burdens, if he denied himself for our sake, then surely we can bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. Surely we can deny ourselves for their sake. That's the analogy that's being made. Verse 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have Hope. Now, the fourth verse is one of those universally applicable nuggets of truth that's tucked away in the midst of a very specific set of, of discussions and instruction. It is best to take, you can take verse 4 and you can pluck it right out of context. It's a verse that talks about the validity of Scripture and the reason for Scripture. It's best to look at it as a parenthetical expression in that Paul, having just quoted from the Old Testament, now stops and interjects a statement about the purpose of Scripture, all Scripture, not just that verse, but all of it. So he's, he's quoted the Old Testament to reinforce his argument. Now he stops and just makes this general observation that's applicable across the whole broad expanse of Scripture. Speaking of the Word of God, Paul says, everything that was written there was written to teach us. It's all there as examples and instructions for us, and we're supposed to learn from it. And those things that were written aforetime, they were written for our learning. 
Amen. We're supposed to learn something from the scripture. Listen, it's not just a bunch of Bible stories that the Sunday school teacher tells and, and that we, we memorize and that we, where everybody knows the story of David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale. It isn't there just so it can be folklore. It's there because you learn something from it. It's there because it teaches you what it means to, to live for God. It's there because it teaches you that God will always be there and that he'll always provide, that he has a plan that's bigger than what Jonah understands. And, and he has has a plan that's bigger than what Jonah can grasp. Uh, amen. And God calls Jonah to sacrifice his thoughts, his plan, his political ideology for the sake of the good of Nineveh. And Jonah can't do it. So God makes sure he puts him in a place where he realizes, I don't really have a lot of choice. That story's there for my benefit. Sometimes God's going to call me to places that are uncomfortable for me. Sometimes God's going to call me to interact with people that I in my flesh may despise. That's Jonah's problem. He hated them. Let's just be honest. The Ninevites had been rude, mean, and cruel, and vindictive, and vicious. And he wanted nothing more than to see God pour hellfire and brimstone on their heads. Amen? Sometimes God's going to put you in that place. Go make peace with those who have made war against you. Sometimes that's what he's going to call you to do. And so the scripture's there so that I can learn. The story of Jonah's not there for Jonah's sake. It's there for my sake. It's there so that I can learn. God's will and God's way is better than my will and my way. Amen. What he has planned. Well, first of all, God loves mercy over judgment. And the Ninevites deserve judgment. They deserve fire and brimstone. But guess what? So does Jonah. And God didn't pour fire and brimstone on Jonah. And so Jonah ought to be willing to see that God shouldn't pour fire and brimstone on Nineveh if they'll repent. And sometimes I'm vindicated in my anger. I've been treated wrongly. And I'm justified in the sense of the fact that I have been offended. But God calls me to treat somebody else not like they deserve, but like he treated me. He loved me when I was unlovable. That's the call. So everything that's written in the scripture is written for my example. It's written for my learning. And then he, he goes on to detail two of the things that we're supposed to learn. That we, through patience and comfort of the scripture. So the Two of the things that we're supposed to learn are patience and comfort so that we might have hope. That word patience has to do with endurance and steadfastness. I, I often say it's better translated as persistence. Uh, it is, it, it's more than just patience the way that we see it in the English definition of the word. But the Greek word there has to do with persistence, stick to itness. It has to do with enduring through hard times. That's what we're supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn that even when times get tough, amen, God's going to be there. Whenever we run into the famine and it's there for years and years and years, he's still going to provide the little widow lady that's faithful and righteous with a little food, amen. He's going to take care of his own. That's why the stories are in the word of God. And the second word, comfort, has to do with encouragement in the same sense that you would comfort one another. Whenever my my grandfather, my step-grandfather passed away this week. I called my grandmother and tried to 
comfort her, to encourage her, to lift her up. Went up there and, and to the funeral home and, and hugged her neck and, and told her we were praying for her. I'm trying to comfort her. I'm trying to encourage her. So the scripture's there for two reasons. One, to cause me to, to develop this persistence, this patience, this endurance, to know that God's in charge. Amen. Every scripture, every word, every story in the Old Testament leads me to the same conclusion. God's in charge, and he always triumphs. He always comes through. He's never been defeated. His plan's never been thwarted. The enemy hasn't won one battle. And so I'm supposed to be encouraged to persistence, to patience, and to be comforted. Amen. So that I can have hope in the middle of my trial, in the middle of my situation, in the middle of my circumstance. I can know that God will help me, that he's going to show up for me, that he's going to bless me, that he's going to take care of me. That when I don't know where I'm going to turn, I can trust him. That deliverance is going to come from somewhere I never imagined that it would come from. Because that's the way it works. Because the Bible tells me so. Amen. So verse 4 is this wonderful little treasure that you can even pluck out of the midst. And we talk about taking Scripture out of context. This, this, this verse has nothing to do solely with the discussion that's going on around it. It's, it's a statement of the validity and the reason and the meaning of Scripture. It's applicable, amen, across the broad expanse of the Bible. Amen. This is why Scripture was given to us. It was given so that we'd be encouraged, so that we'd, we'd find that persistence, so that we'd be comforted in the Holy Ghost, so that we would understand we have hope in a hopeless situation. Amen. amen. Now, verse 5 uh, says this, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So verses 5 and 6, these next two verses and the last two verses we'll deal with this morning are a prayer that Paul prayed for his readers. Having paused already to explain the validity of quoting Scripture, Paul now offers a short prayer before he returns to the subject at hand. And in this prayer, he calls God the God of patience and consolation. Now, the English translation here is not friendly towards recognizing the strong parallel that exists between verses 4 and 5. But the words are the same. The word of God was written so that we would have patience and comfort. You remember that? Now he calls God the God of patience and the English translation here is consolation be just as well with comfort. Amen. The parallel that's trying to be drawn here is that the word of God gives us patience and comfort. And God is the God of patience and comfort. Amen. He is the God who helps us, who, who gives us that perseverance. Amen. That endurance and encouragement that comes from the Word of God is something Paul wants to emphasize here. It, it, we get it from Scripture. We get it from the presence of God. He is the God of endurance and encouragement. Amen. And so Paul prays then that the God of endurance and encouragement will help us to be like-minded one toward another according to the example of Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer is for the unity of the church. That we together would have peace and harmony in the church. Not division and strife. 
Not, not hardship and, and constant backbiting and bickering, but that we would have unity and peace and harmony in the church. And the key to that example is the cross, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of room for improvement in this area among all of us. Jesus told his followers that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by your love one for another. When the world looks to the church and sees disunity and conflict in the church, it obscures the very reason why the church exists. This is not my kingdom. This is not your kingdom. This is his kingdom. And our job is not to turn folks off and turn them away. Our job is to invite them in. Our job is to bring them into the kingdom. And that's what Paul is praying for, simply that brothers and sisters in the Lord would live in unity with one another, harmony with one another, that we'd all learn how to get along. Because whether or not we get along has a strong impact on the stranger that walks through those doors. And they can pick up on that tension. And they don't want to be any part of that. Got enough trouble of my own. I don't need to borrow somebody else's trouble. Amen. Verse 6 says that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he prays that we would have one mind and one mouth and that we would glorify God in everything that we do. What a powerful statement of unity. One mind, one mouth. Most scholars think that Paul is making an allusion here with the one mind statement to the common faith or the body of beliefs that the church holds in common. In other words, we, we may have our differences on certain non-moral issues. We may have our differences on whether or not to eat meat. Amen. We may have some places where there are differences of opinion, but when it comes to the common faith, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel message, we're in harmony. We have one mind. Amen. We all agree together that it takes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order for us to be saved. And we understand that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, repentance, remission of sins through baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, that he was giving voice to the gospel. Amen. That death is reflected in repentance. That burial is a part of what baptism is. And that the resurrection in life comes through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And on this we agree. We may disagree on some other things, but on this we agree. We're unified, one in mind. One mind we come together in a unity of doctrine and a unity of... That's why this whole idea of Christian liberty only applies to non-moral, non-salvation issues. When it comes to salvation, we're in one mind. Amen. We agree. Likewise, we're to be united in voice or mouth. We're united in our desire to give vocal praise and glory and honor to God. Our worship brings us together in one voice. 
When we gather together in the house of God on a Sunday morning and we begin to praise the Lord and we begin to magnify His name, all the cares and affairs of this life begin to fade away. Amen. The old songwriter said this world grows strangely dim. Uh, Amen. The light of His glory and grace. When we begin to magnify Him and we begin to lift Him up together and we come together unified in one mind with one doctrine, worshiping Him in spirit and truth, our voices go together in one voice and we glorify God and we magnify his name and we exalt him together. That's what Paul was praying for. That there be unity in the church. That when we come together, amen, we would be bound together by that, that which we have in common and that together we would worship him and together we would magnify his name. Amen? The last phrase the end of this verse, God is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a description that does not take away from the deity of Jesus or the oneness of God. Instead, it describes the unique covenant relationship of the man, Jesus Christ, the humanity, and the deity. That turn of phrase simply reminds us of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man. And our salvation, that glorious gospel that unites us into one mouth and one mind, comes from the blessing that we receive through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of that sinless man, Christ Jesus. Amen? So that's the imagery that Paul is calling to mind. The man, Christ Jesus, the humanity, died for our sins. And we in our flesh have been called to emulate him in our relationship with one another. Amen. We're to live like he lived. We're to act like he acted. So it's a fitting way to wrap up this prayer. Amen. That we may glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing that relationship between humanity and deity. Amen. Now, when there's strife and division in the church... When certain ones simply can't get along with one another, when they're constantly sniping at each other, when I've been in services where some people can't sit on a certain pew because somebody else is sitting on that pew. And they're angry. They're upset. When that happens, the very purpose of the church is undermined. When we lose this unity of mouth and mind that Paul is talking about, our worship falters and the mission of the church suffers. When that happens, we've truly lost sight of the reason why we're here. We've truly lost sight of the reason why we come to church on a Sunday morning. I've been married just a little over 23 years. And I'm not sure that that qualifies me to make conclusive statements about marriage. But as a pastor, I find myself in the place of having to counsel folks. So one of the things that I've learned is that almost every disagreement and argument that threatens the unity of a marriage is rooted in some form of selfishness. We find ourselves locked in intractable conflicts because neither one of us wants to give in. It's a selfish desire 
that drives the conflict. Now, there may have been a wrong, an initial wrong that was committed. There may have been a justifiable reason, justifiable reason for the argument to have begun. But by the time it gets to the pastor's office, both have committed wrongs. Both have said and done things they regret. And both have caused offenses. And in the end of the day, at that point, both need to apologize. But it's a, it's a, it's a tug of war. It's a, it's, a, it's a staring contest to see who's going to break first because my selfishness won't let me yield. So you know what? This marriage matters more to me than the fact that I'm right. It won't let me surrender. It's selfishness that drives that. So whenever we get in that kind of situation, I, I try to tell couples, I try to tell people that, that sit across the desk from me, selfishness undermines the very meaning of marriage. In marriage, two become one. Anything that divides us back to two undermines what marriage is. Amen. If I've got to win at your expense, then we're not one. Does that make sense? So it, under, it, it weakens the very principle of marriage whenever, whenever the two individuals that have been united together in one become consumed with what they individually feel is they're just doing, they're just right, and what they deserve at the expense of the other. The marriage is what is weakened. But when the two can come together and get past the selfishness of it all and rediscover the unity of marriage, when they rediscover that the, the, this, this thing called marriage is more important than my fault or, or my hurt feelings or the thing that was said and done in the first place was really, really insignificant compared to the importance of this relationship we had together, very often you don't even have to go back and deal with the initial conflict. When you get to the place that you realize it really doesn't matter anymore. Marriage is about my will being submitted so that another can be a part of my life. I give a little of myself. She gives a little of herself. And together we become one. Amen? Now, setting the marriage counseling aside, the reason I bring that up is because when there's conflict in the church, it is almost always rooted in selfishness. It's very similar to the marriage relationship. And, and that has been the point in this entire lesson today. Paul has called us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us and how that he denied himself, how that he took up our cross, how that he died in our place. And Paul has challenged us to imitate Jesus Christ, not to do what we think is right, but to do what he did. If I do what I think is right, I'm going to contend for my own rightness. I'm going to contend for my own side of the story. Amen? Jesus Christ, if he had contended for what was right, wouldn't have went to the cross. He was innocent. But he died in my place. Amen? And when the focus becomes the unity of the church rather than my own personal justification for the division that divides the church, then the focus shifts to helping others. And all of a sudden, we're able to, the strong, we're able to stoop down and pick up the weak. And we're able to stand together in unity and harmony 
and peace in the church. That's what Paul is arguing for. That is what he is praying for, that we would sacrifice ourselves, that we would surrender our own good, our own rights, our own privileges for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. If everybody did that, the church would be a whole lot better off. As a matter of fact, if everyone did that, the world would be a much better place. Amen? But here's the point, if you'll stand with me. It doesn't start with everyone. Brother Ryan, if you'll come. If everyone did that, the world would be a much better place. But it doesn't start with everyone. It starts with you. And it starts with me. This morning the message is simple. Lay down yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Lay down the divisions, the strife, the contention, the things that divide us. Lay down your, you may be righteous in your indignation. You may be right in your position. But is it really worth the disunity of the body to contend for your rightness? Lay down yourself. Pick up your cross. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow his example. Let's be the church he called us to be. I have no greater desire for this church than that whenever people come through those doors that they feel love. Unmitigated, unhindered, genuine love. Not that they feel like, you know, some people you love them in a condescending way. You know, I love them just in a way of tolerating. That's not the kind of love people need to feel when they come to the house of God. They need to feel genuine love. Let me tell you where real love comes from. It comes from a sacrificed self. Real love comes from a sacrificed self. From a person who takes up the cross. This is I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, he loved the unlovable. He loved the unlovable. That's what I'm called to do. He loved those who did not deserve it. When the reject of society, when the outcast of society, whenever those that are, uh, you think of the most vile and unimaginable act that you can think of, and when the people that are guilty of that walk through those doors, they shouldn't find judgment. They're going to find enough judgment in the presence of God. They ought to find love. Amen? They ought to find love. They ought to find a place where people will say, I'll help you. I'll help you find your way to the cross. I'll help you find your way to an altar. I'll help you get back on your feet. I'll help you discover what is really good and what is really just and what is really pure in this world. I'll help you come to know Jesus Christ. I'm asking you this morning on a Sunday. Well, I know it's a little different. Sometimes it's these lessons don't give themselves well to an altar call. We're in the middle of this discussion of Christian liberty and how you should treat one another. And probably the better thing to do would be to tell you to find somebody in this, this congregation that has offended you and go tell them you're sorry. Did you hear what I said? Not to find somebody who offended you and go tell them you forgive them. Find somebody who offended you and go tell them you're sorry. That's the principle we're putting in play here. 
It's easy to go tell them, I forgive you. It's a whole other thing to go say, you know what, I'm sorry. Because at the end of the day, I've done something wrong too. Amen. If there's conflict, I'm just going, this is the marriage counselor coming out. It takes two to tango. You don't have a fight that's one-sided. Never. Amen. Somebody gets their feelings hurt. And it takes two to get it going. Amen. But when I, I'm not going to put you in that uncomfortable position because when you walk across this room, everybody in the room is going to be wondering what, your, what, the, what the fault is. Instead, I'm going to ask you to come to an altar. And just for a few moments this morning, turn your heart towards heaven. And this is what I want you to pray. Lord, teach me to love like you love. Teach us to be the church that you've called us to be. Let us have the kind of unity and peace that only comes from your presence.